everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the Support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Lives, taking a look at lives, less less well-known lives, of Catholics throughout the ages. And this week's episode, episode 12, is about someone you probably have never heard of, unless you were in the art world, Artemisia Gentileschi. Artemisia Gentileschi is one of the great artists, uh, painters, of the Baroque era of the 17th century, and well-known in her own lifetime, one of the few. And she is known particularly for her depictions of biblical stories. That's one of the reasons why she's on a Catholic podcast. But she also has a sort of personal story which has endeared her to later scholars, especially in the 20th century, which we'll get to. And so this week's, uh, with this, this week's uh, podcast, we'll take a look at her life and why she is a unique person to study and understand in Catholic history. So let's begin and talk about her life. Gentileschi, Artemisia Gentileschi, was born on July 8th, 1593 in Rome, and uh, she was the daughter of a well-known painter uh, himself, Orazio Gentileschi. Her mother died when she was 12. She was the eldest of his seven, uh, seven children, and she quickly showed an aptitude for art and began to learn from her father. Her father trained her as an artist, and introduced her to the other artists in Rome that he knew, including Michelangelo Merisi de Caravaggio, whom we know as Caravaggio, if you don't know who this is, one of the great artists of the Baroque era working in Rome. Rome is the center of the Baroque art world in the 17th century after the Counter-Reformation, and she would be deeply influenced by his style, if you know anything about his style, um, you know, contrast of light and shadow, uh, sometimes called tenebrism, where the, uh, the background of Caravaggio's paintings are black and the figures are sort of brightly colored to sort of set them off. A lot of that in her paintings. By the time she was 17, she'd actually produced one of the works for which she is best well known, uh, her interpretation of the story of Susanna and the Elders from the Book of Daniel in 1610. And I mentioned that Orazio was friendly with Caravaggio, and just giving an idea of what artists were like in the 17th century in Rome, Rome being a sort of cultural capital, but also a kind of a crazy place. Orazio and Caravaggio, her father um, and him, uh, were once charged for writing slanderous graffiti on the streets of Rome about another painter. And uh, we know from this that he was tried for this. Orazio told an anecdote about Caravaggio visiting his house to borrow some stuff from him. And so it's evidence that she probably had some relationship, uh, knew uh, Caravaggio himself. Uh, Nevertheless, when she was 13, Caravaggio had to leave Rome because he was implicated in a murder (laughs) and forced to flee from Rome to Naples. And again, give you an idea what what kind of era we're talking about in here. But as she came of age in 1611, this leads to the, the story which in a weird way has overshadowed her own life and her great work, which is that in 1611, her father was hired uh, to decorate a palace in Rome alongside another painter, a man named Agostino Tassi. Hoping to improve his daughter's technique, Orazio hired this man, Tassi, as her tutor. This gave Tassi one-on-one access to Artemisia, and during one of the tutoring sessions when they were alone, he raped her. 
And we know this because later on uh, they would actually take him to trial. And during the trial, she actually described the ordeal thusly, quote, uh, He then threw me on the, on the edge of the bed, pushing me with a hand on my breast, and he put a knee between my thighs to prevent me from closing them. Lifting my clothes, he placed a hand with a handkerchief on my mouth to keep me from screaming. And this, of course, uh, again, one of the dramatic incidents of a life, and this is one of the things that scholars attract scholars to her. In fact, after the rape, Artemisia actually started a relationship with Tazi, believing, because he promised her this to her, that they would be married. But later on, Tazi, of course, reneged. And so what happened was Orazio, her father, took the very unusual decision to uh, take him to court uh, and charge him, have him charged with rape. And the subsequent trial went on for many months. And this whole thing, to give you an idea of how weird things are in this time period, turned on the fact, uh, whether it turned on the issue of whether or not Artemisia had been a virgin before Tassi had raped her. She had to actually go through a, a gynecological examination to prove that she had been a virgin. Partly because Tassi claimed that she was a complete whore, had a bunch of witnesses come in, told her she was totally promiscuous, all this stuff. In order to convince the court, she actually went, I believe this was voluntary, although the state could use this in trials in the 17th century in Italy. She underwent torture in order to test the truthfulness of her, her testimony. They, um, they actually tortured her with thumbscrews. And again, this is especially impressive, I guess, for an artist, because of course she worked by using her hands, but she avoided any permanent damage. And surprisingly, and at the end of all this, Tassi was actually found guilty and punished by being exiled from Rome, which, unfortunately, the sentence was never carried out because Tassi received protection from the Pope due to his artistic skill. And one of the things about her life, and we'll come to this moment, her paintings, some of her most famous, famous paintings, feature scenes of women either being attacked by men or of women being in positions of power <laughs> against men. Uh, who've attacked them. Particularly, there are biblical images we'll get to in a moment. And this is something, of course, modern scholars love to read back into her work. Nevertheless, this did not destroy her life or her career. Within a month of the trial, Orazio had made arrangements for her to marry an artist named Pierantonio uh, Stiatesi. Uh, and they moved to Florence. And here she received one of her first commissions, um, uh, for a fresco at the home of uh, Michelangelo, which was being turned into a museum at the time. And in fact, while she was there, she worked with her husband at the Academy of Design, the Royal Academy of Design, in, or not Royal, but the Academy of Design in Florence. And she actually became a member there in 1616. This is a remarkable woman, uh, honor for a woman of her day. I don't know of any others that actually gained admission to this thing. Uh, probably on the strength of her relationship with her patron, Duke Cosimo uh, II of the Medici family there. Eventually, uh, Dideleschi left uh, Florence to, turn to return to Rome uh, upon the death of um, Cosimo in 1621. In 1618, Artemisia and her husband had a daughter, Prudencio, but not being her only surviving child. And... Around the same time, we know, because we have a cache of letters from her, she began an affair, a passionate affair, with a Florentine nobleman, a guy named Meringhi. Uh, and their affair is documented by these letters, and they, it's one of the few areas where it comes out, you know, her personality and her life. We know 
about her anything except for her art. And uh, and some of them, they're, you know, very moving. She's writing in one of them uh, a few days after the death of her son. And she tells Meringi that um, her fortune has turned its back on her and she's distraught with grief and all these other sorts of things. And, you know, and so you get the you get the sense of uh, what she's actually like in these letters. We only have one other cache of letters from her. I'll get to in a second. But it's uh, other letters, of course, are much more mundane and kind of funny. She talks in one letter complains to her lover that she's gaining weight. <laughs> and so people can barely recognize her now and stuff like this. Uh, in any case, her relationship with her husband apparently wasn't that great. More strange, though, is actually her husband knew about this affair. And some people, again, apparently her, her husband even wrote to this guy. And the reason might have been, some people think, is that they tended to have money management problems, mainly because of him, her husband, in other words. And apparently her lover was, this nobleman, was actually keeping them solvent for a while. In any case, uh, it triggered disagreements between her and her husband, and she returned to Rome without him uh, in 1621. And by 1623, any mention of her husband disappears from the historical record. And throughout the 1620s, she has, it's fairly, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a life of struggle to a certain degree. Her son dies. Just as she arrives in Rome, her father leaves, goes to Genoa. She won't have any contact with him for many years. Uh, at the same time, the uh, letters from her lover seem to uh, dissipate a little bit, so there's less going on here. Uh, eventually, in the end, of, beginning of the 1630s, she moves uh, without her husband, but with her daughter, she moves to Naples, where she writes, begins to work with a number of well-known artists and starts working on a series of paintings in a cathedral for the first time uh, as well. Later on in the 1630s, she will be invited to the court uh, of uh, Charles I in England, who, though he's an Anglican, welcomes Catholic artists to his, to his court. His wife is French, so he has Catholic tastes. Uh, where she meets up again with her father, we don't know what happened between them. There's no record of this, but they clearly were there. Um, he was doing paintings for him. He had been there for some time. Uh, she may have helped him in some of the paintings he did in some of the palaces. However, he dies in 1639. She probably remained there for a couple of years after, but she's gone from uh, England in 1642, returns to Naples, where we're not really sure what happens to her. We have some letters uh, from the 16, late 1640s uh, between her and her patron, Don Antonio Rufo. Uh, the last letter is dated from 1650, and then she kind of disappears. It's not known when she died. Um, maybe 1652, maybe 1654. A popular theory seems to be that she died in the plague that devastated Naples in 1656. But she disappears from the record, perhaps because at the time she was a woman, uh, and people didn't, maybe didn't care as much, I don't know, about her, about her letters. But her life, obviously, is a fascinating one, uh, overcoming this traumatic event of being assaulted and then uh, earning, a, earning a living, being a painter, and this is something that people discuss to this day. Scholars love this stuff, obviously. And her legacy has you know, been controversial well, uh, and complex. Before her death in the 16th, or around the time of her death in the 1650s, several derogatory epitaphs were published about her. To give me an example, one of them reads, quote, By painting one likeness after another, I earn no end of merit in the world. While to carve two horns upon my husband's head, I put down the brush and took a chisel instead, unquote. That's people during her lifetime. 
obviously in uh, modern times, people have taken a different line on this. And one of the things, by the way, this is partly, partly you know, misogyny at work here, but also the fact that her works were so similar to those of her father. A lot of her works were misattributed to him until the 20th century. And it's only in the 20th century that you have a serious reevaluation of her by academics. There was a scholar, um, Caravaggio, a scholar named Roberto Longhi in the early part of the 20th century that uh, tried to champion her. But at the same time, you also had novelists and other artists dredging her life up and kind of sensationalizing it. And in fact, to this day, if you go onto Amazon, you will find literally dozens of novels about Art Artemisia Gentileschi, a you've probably never heard of. Uh, and in, but in fact, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, you begin to have feminist art historians begin to reassess their understanding of her and to make her uh, a bigger figure in the history of art in the 17th century. And in fact, there have been numerable, um, uh, numerable showings of her work at major uh, galleries. There was one last fall, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this, uh, in London, I want to say at the National Gallery on her, um, painting her, of course, as a feminist icon, someone who, of course, was trying to push the boundaries of art in the 17th century. And, and, uh, and you know, and if you take a look at her paintings, uh, they're amazing and they're great. A lot of them are done in the style of Caravaggio, as I mentioned. But the most famous one of, of her paintings is the... Um, the one of Judith and Holofernes, if you know that story from the Bible, from the book of Judith, where Holofernes is the, the general of the army facing Israel, and Judith goes into the tent and, and kills him. And she paints this really horrific <laughs> vision of this, of this uh, event, this biblical passage. And as I said before, and there are tons of these paintings in her, in her portfolio, as it were. Again, modern scholars tend to think there's, <laughs> there's something behind this. On the other hand, of course, one of the things she probably had to do as an artist in the 17th century was sell herself. You know, she's a woman artist. She's having to make a living in a man's world. And so I, I can imagine she maybe pushed some of these, these, uh, these topics because, well, when they're biblical, they sell. But also, you know, again, she's having to make use of her novelty as a, as a woman artist. Uh, but there are tons of these, 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 um, these types of works. And there's been a big push for this. There has been a little bit of pushback on this. Um, the uh, inimitable uh, Camille Paglia actually has naturally, given the contrarian that she is, uh, has basically said that people overrate her work, that she's not that great of an artist. On the other hand, I, I think, you know, if you're wondering why, in the midst of all this, I've chosen her as a Catholic life, doesn't sound like the most dedicated Catholic. I don't know. I haven't had a chance to read her letters. Uh, there's nothing that's, that screams piety to me. On the other hand, she is writing, uh, excuse me, she is painting in this Baroque style, which almost all scholars agree, this style of art she's writing, she's painting in, is a period which is deeply influenced by the Catholic Counter-Reformation. <clears throat> by the Council of Trent. Uh, according to the Council of Trent, uh, there are actually a couple of uh, of fairly general guidelines in the council, canons of the Council of Trent, basically enjoining Catholic artists to make their works be clear, intelligible, and, and present in a realistic manner in order to stimulate piety, to make them, uh, to make them, uh, uh, to make them uh, understandable by ordinary people. And so to, to uh, exaggerate, if you like, 
their emotional impact. And in fact, things like, you know, dramatic color, contrast of light and dark, those sorts of things. Um, heavy brush strokes, loose brush strokes, those sorts of things. The, a lot of the stuff you'll see in someone like Caravaggio, who is a great painter, all these other things. Depicting people in, you know, ecstasy, religious ecstasy, stuff like this, martyrdom and death, done in a naturalistic manner becomes sort of the style associated with the Catholic kind of Reformation. That's the reason why this art movement is centered in Rome. Uh, papacy is the, uh, the pa patron of Caravaggio, the patient, patron of the uh, sculptor Bernini, and those sorts of people. And so you have this, you have this emphasis on art that's meant to do this sort of stuff. And in that sense, Artemisia Gentileschi should be seen, I think, as a, as a Catholic artist. She is doing, and a lot of her subjects are, of course, uh, from the Bible and other things like this, whatever the state of her piety. And by the way, if you're wondering about the state of her piety, just to give you a contrast, it's Bernini, of course, who does the, the, um, the courtyard, who actually creates the courtyard in St. Peter's Square. And to give you an idea, if we're talking about Catholic lives, whether or not she should be included in something like this. If you don't know, there's a story about Bernini that he actually he was married. He had a lover, a mistress. And her, his uh, mistress, if I'm, if I'm maybe misremembering this, uh, slept, I think, with his brother behind his back. And in retaliation for this, he actually sliced her face with a knife. Uh, Caravaggio, of course, uh, was accused of murder early on, of course, in this, this little uh, podcast I've already mentioned. So this is the time period we're talking about here. Uh, and yet, the, the, some of these artists create this magnificent work. And I think she should be included in this. Particularly because, hey, look, if, um, if modern scholars can claim her for feminism, I can claim her for the, for the Counter-Reformation. I, I, think, I think that's doable. Just take, for example, again, her most famous artwork probably is that picture of Judith and Holofernes, but take the whole type of Judith. Again, modern scholars like to read into this a sort of feminism, which is fine. You can do that. But I think I can read into this something working within the Christian tradition. Judith and the Christian tradition, going back to the early church fathers, was a type of the church, a type of Mary, uh, of a woman overcoming the devil and sin. You remember Mary stomping on the devil, all that sort of stuff. Um, she she comes up, becomes a type of wisdom, of fortitude, of justice, uh, in sort of medieval typology, things of this nature. And of course, in you know the book of Judith, she's a defender of the people of Israel, her people. Uh, and she's inevitably marshaled in struggles against tyrants and enemies in art and artwork and stuff like this. And in fact, Judith becomes, uh, this biblical figure, a, a potent symbol during the Counter-Reformation. Why? Because the book of Judith, of course, is not seen as canonical by Protestants. They reject it. So it becomes heightened, even, the symbolism. And so I don't think it's too much of a stretch. If you think of, you know, all these paintings, where she does not just Judith and Holofernes, but she does lots of paintings of Mary Magdalene and stuff like this, but particularly, you know, Judith as being this, you know, uh, her paintings of being someone who's, of women destroying or, or fighting off attackers who are trying to attack them. Uh, perhaps uh, a symbol for the kind of Reformation Church, fighting off the attacks of Protestantism. Maybe that's too maybe that's too neat. I don't know, but in any case, I don't think there's any doubt that her paintings should be seen in the mainstream of Catholic art, and that she deserves to be more more well known. Not just because of her life, which was extraordinary, but also she deserves to be known as a great Catholic artist. In fact, if you want an, an example of this, 
Uh, her art, I think, is really wonderful. Go take a look at her picture of the conversion of the Magdalene. It's a beautiful painting. The Magdalene is sitting in a beautiful chair with a beautiful gold dress on, and she has her hand on her breast like she's just come to some sort of great realization. And it's a wonderful painting, kind of in the style of Caravaggio. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful little painting uh, for the time period. And so uh, someone that's, uh, again, uh, the kind of person in, in Catholic history you may not think about, not a saint, but someone who deserves a little better reputation, I think, than she's had before. And I don't think we should let uh, academics and feminists have her all to herself. And so that is the life for this week, the life of Artemisia Gentileschi, Baroque master. Thank you guys for listening. Take care. Have a great week.